Welcome to the HR on the Offensive podcast, brought to you by Lace Partners. Good afternoon and good evening and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive podcast. It's me, Chris Howard from Lace Partners. Thank you very much for being here and listening to our latest podcast. And it's a lovely one today, a really interesting one. We've got a fascinating guest, somebody from from within education. So I'm hoping that she's going to give us the benefit of her years of wisdom. And I'm actually welcoming a co-partner in crime for this one for the first time. Mm. It's Evan Wynn from Lace Partners. He's actually in the room with me today because we're yeah. doing it in a room. How are you doing, Evan? You all right? Good, yeah, yeah. Happy to be here, Chris. Yeah, I'm happy to talk to our guest. And shall we introduce our guest? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so this is Deirdre O'Shea. She's the Associate Professor of Work and Organisational Psychology from the University of Limerick. And I did, well, I'm going to let you in, listener, to a little secret. I did admit to just double-checking that beforehand because there's been a couple of times where people think put things on their LinkedIn profile and it turns out that's not their exact job title. So I did double-check. I did my due diligence. Deirdre, Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Chris. And thanks, Evan. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, it's lovely to have you on. Now, what we wanted to do, because the three of us obviously had a catch up a few weeks ago, actually, it might have been before Christmas now, just to talk about some of your passions and areas that you have a passion for. And so what we wanted to do today is really tap into that. And it's all around that kind of well-being kind of focus within the workplace. But before we go into that, we've got some lovely questions we want to quiz you on. Can you just give our listeners the benefit of a little bit of detail and maybe put a little bit more colour on what you do rather than me just saying, it's the Associate Professor of Work and Organisational Psychology from the University of Limerick. Sure, no problem. So I work in an applied area of psychology and in contrast to some other applied areas, you know, like clinical or health psychology, we're very much focused on the workplace. And specifically what we're interested in looking at is, uh, well, various different things. One, of course, is what we're going to talk about today. It's how to keep people well or to improve people's well-being in the workplace. And the other side of that is, of course, how to ensure that people are the best they can be in the workplace. So it looks at things like productivity, performance and motivation, all those sort of things. But but predominantly, the way we normally describe work and organizational psychology is that it tries to make work a better place for people in its various forms. Lovely. And I think what a better conversation to have right now where you've got people, you know, post pandemic, people are concerned about their own personal lives. You've got cost of living. All of these things are impacting and having an impact on people within the workplace. So but I'm stealing some time because I want to give Evan some first time. Do you want to fire the first uh, question, Deirdre? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the first question, Deirdre, is, is what are some of the signs saying in terms of the state of well-being and how is this affecting organisations? And then are you seeing some of what the science is saying within organisations? you're working with at the moment? Yeah, for sure. So well-being is a very general term, isn't it? You know, we, we bandy it around, but really it's not until we start thinking about well, what does it mean, actually, that we start sometimes getting into the complicated issues around what well-being is for, for different individuals and across different cultures and, and so on. And so I guess the easiest way to start thinking about it is how it contrasts or is similar to mental health. So, you know, we're all very familiar with the concept of mental health. Up to about 25, 30 years ago, psychology very much focused on how to prevent poor mental health and was very focused on what we sometimes think about as the negative side of, of well-being and the negative side of mental health and how to prevent those things. 
It turns out that just getting to some somebody to a place where they're not unwell or they're not or, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that they're thriving or that they're really at their best, what we might call a thriving or vitality year and so on. And so about 20 years ago or so, there was a movement in psychology where they said, well, we need to not just think about how to prevent all these you know, poor types of mental health and poor types of, of well-being, but actually think about more how to enhance the positive side. And, and that's become really popularized in the positive psychology movement. And, you know, there's more positive psychology books than we can probably count at this stage. And some of it's based on science and some of it is not based on science. But from a, a psychology perspective and also from specifically from a workplace context, we think about mental health very much as a, a subjective sense of well-being. So do we feel well in the morning? Do we want to get up in the morning? and go to, to work. Some of that comes from the individual themselves, you know, whether they're happy in themselves and they're happy in their work and they feel motivated by what they're doing. And some of it comes from the workplace in terms of how the work is designed and whether there's too much to do. So there's too many demands or whether we have enough resources in our context or in our work and in ourselves to, to do that. And it's a fair amount of evidence at this stage to suggest that being well in terms of our work and our job is a function of actually having stimulating work to do. So not, you know, not having too little to do actually that ends up being a boring job but having enough that it's it's motivating and it drives us but not having too much to do or having the resources to be able to meet those demands and that's yeah without going into taking up the entire podcast or just what well-being is I'll pause there yeah no it's really really interesting you talked about the change in what's the academics and psychology is talking about from 20 years ago did that is that accelerated much post-pandemic then because that's one of the things that in HR that we are talking about within business, it's how the mindset of how well-being is has flipped. It's almost accelerated. If you were to draw almost a linear graph as to thinking or however it was, it's like just sent it through the roof almost as people and businesses start to say, okay, this was something that's been on our radar. We know we should be doing more towards supporting people, whether that's financial well-being, whether that's, you know, looking more broadly at the, the experience that people have within working. But do you think has the, uh, from a from an academic point of view, or just from what you've seen and heard, has thinking accelerated more post-pandemic? I would not say necessarily post-pandemic. What I would say is that there has been a shift over the last 15 or 20 years in society more broadly, which has also been followed then by, of course, workplaces and organisations, which is reducing the stigma around talking about mental health. And, you know, there's been so many campaigns over the last 15, 20 years about, you know, it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to say that you're not okay and and so on. And that then has, I suppose, that shift in society. We also see it in in shifts in organisations and organisations organizational culture as well, where I think employers now recognize the fact that they have to have a consideration of of employee well-being, as well as focusing on things like performance and and so on that would traditionally have been the the remit. And then, of course, a lot of the, I suppose, the responsibility for that sometimes lands on HR, right? Because Mm -hmm. HR is the people side of of the house and, and so on. And it's, well, how do we do this? And I think organizations genuinely have been grappling with that and how best to do it, because it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. Yeah. One of the other questions I just wanted to ask you, who I will eventually let Evan get a word in edgeways, is how much impact is the, is it a generational thing? So we've got a new generation of people entering the workforce that are more happy to talk about mental health and well-being. And as a result of that, businesses naturally have to bend and flex towards that because they recognise that this new generation of people, they want 
different requirements to what I'm actually now turning into one of the middle aged people of the generation before, which is slightly depressing from my own perspective. But I see a generation of people coming into the workforce that are they've got different requirements from this perspective. So my question, I guess, it goes back to the original point, which is how much from what you've just said there is, is it a generational thing as to why businesses are, are moving? Yeah, I, I certainly think it's something to do with the times that we live in, uh, but probably more to do with the context of it in which we're we're operating. You know, if you went back to the 80s, it was very much about get a job, keep it, hold on to it. And you had a job for life and you you dealt with whatever crap or anything like that you had to deal with in the job because you needed to hold on to it. Now we're more in a situation where, OK, we've gone through we go through recessions and boom times. But certainly at the moment, we're in a reasonably good job market. There's relatively low unemployment employment and so on. And of course, people can be more picky and choosy then and they will pick a job where there is more enjoyment, there's better benefits, you know, we we have more meaning from the job and so on. Whether that's a generational thing or whether it's just the fact that at the moment, you know, we're in that type of environment, I, I don't know. But certainly I think people are looking to what organizations will give them beyond a paycheck for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you talked about organizations making sure you have the right people and that employees don't have too much that they can't cope. Do you think that organizations are doing enough to ensure that that happens? Or are organizations focused on maybe treating the symptoms of poor workplace well-being or poor employee well-being rather than focus on, focusing on the underlying larger issue? That's actually a really good question, Evan, because I think that actually gets to the crux of the issue that, you know, we focus on well-being as opposed to what might be causing people's poor well-being in, in organisations. And that comes down to a number of factors. It comes down to how jobs are designed. There's a, a long running topic in, in HR, which is around high performance work systems and how we design work so that we align the organisational goals with the individual's work. But sometimes we forget to think about, well, how much do people actually have to do? Can they do their jobs in enough time or in the time that they have? Is it a reasonable expectation around that? And of course, they're the sort of things that if we have too much to do, if we have a lot really tight deadlines, if we're not clear on our roles or our goals in the organisation, so lack of role clarity and those sort of things, they will cause us stress because we're not sure what we're doing or whether we're doing things correctly or as they should be and done and so on. So the design of work and how we align work and align people's demands that they have to do in their job with you know what's realistic is is a really, really important aspect of maintaining people's well-being. Of course that's a harder job and a harder task than offering a, you know, a lunchtime mindfulness course or something like that and saying we've ticked the box with well-being. So for sure we need to be thinking about those things. And we also need to be thinking about the the resources that we provide people with, things like having a really supportive supervisor, having the basic things to do your job. You know, we saw an awful lot of that during the pandemic where, you know, even in healthcare and so on, where they didn't have the basics around PPE and all that sort of stuff. And of course, that creates huge stress um, or not having a sufficient workforce um, to, to meet the demands. We've spent probably a decade or a couple of decades looking at lean systems and how to get leaner. But sometimes you need a little bit of slack in the system as well for, for when those unexpected things happen and um, to try to, to maintain people's well-being as much as possible and their performance as well. Mm. It's really interesting and interesting you were talking about ticking the box there because I think that's something that we've talked about internally at LACE from what we've seen not necessarily amongst our clients but perhaps some businesses uh, HR or not HR teams but some businesses in general so I just wanted to get your thoughts just in terms of this idea of this box ticking exercise and people often think 
you know what is well-being do people need to think a little bit more about it's just it's not just ticking certain boxes like for example let's have a mental health policy in place or let's have a series of interesting mindfulness sessions once a month to say we've done our job just what what are you seeing in terms of or what have you seen in terms of that tick boxing box exercise and like are there any tools that you could recommend businesses could start looking at and what steps do organizations need to take to actually address some of these well-being issues i think it you know, to be fair to many organisations, they are genuinely grappling with how to try to, um, you know, improve their employee well-being and do the best by their employees. But, you know, it's it's a relatively new emphasis, let's say, in terms of managing well-being. And so I think if you're trying to look at, well, how, how do we address well-being, then, you know, we, we often buy off the shelf solutions, you know, so we see couch to 5Ks, we see lunchtime mindfulness. And it's not that those yeah. things don't have an impact or are not beneficial, but they may not be addressing the causes. You could say that at, at their, you know, at the very least, they're demonstrating that an organization cares enough to try to put these things in place. But to really grapple with it, I think with some of the things that organizations need to think about is what is what is the cause? There may be a reason to try to improve the what we call the individual resources of employees. So and to improve their coping skills, to maybe build things like resilience, to improve their self-regulation skills and so on. But we also need to think about what's going on socially. So how are teams interacting? How, you know, how civil are people to each other? Do, do, are they nice? Do they trust each other? How is the work designed? What's the organizational culture? And they are slower things to change and, and more difficult things to change and require an organizational level approach to it as opposed to you know the sort of providing individual solutions so the biggest gap i think at the moment is actually what, what we might call kind of diagnosis you know when we talk about mental health and medical side of things we we diagnose what the issue is and then we put in place an appropriate solution i think that's not what we're doing at the moment and it's a shame there's lots of so many organizations do things like employee engagement surveys and so on and there's a huge it's a huge market and there's a huge gap then in just making sure that actually if organizations are doing these sort of surveys that they're using validated tools and they're using ones that, you know, are actually tapping into some of the issues, which could be a very easy way to to sort of diagnose in inverted commas some of the things that organizations could target. Yeah, it's interesting. You're talking about what we were talking about just there. And again, the the the, the box ticking, it sounds to me, again, we're not going to obviously name any company names or anything like that. But it sounds to me that you guys, and I think probably us as well, have come across organisations that almost want to use it as part of their, well, this is our employee value proposition. You know, this part of it is what we do for our people. You know, come and work for us because we have a fantastic wellbeing policy in place or strategies in place and we look after you and all of that. But there are, I'm getting the feeling, and please correct me if I'm not, that what you've seen is there are not enough organizations that really want to get into the weeds of the how do we actually deliver an effective approach to well-being as opposed to how do we make sure that we can put a bullet point on our website which talks about how we help look after and help people yeah i think the bullet point of the website is not is not the way to go actually yeah for sure i think we forget sometimes that work is a really important domain of our lives and it can be a really rewarding experience and you know we we know the benefits of working from studying people who are unemployed um so you know there's research that has been done demonstrating that unemployed people are often more stressed than employed people because of the uncertainty and because of the you know the lack of income and and all those sort of things so work's really important for us 
work can be a really positive thing for us. And I think well-designed work where we like going to work and we're motivated by it tends to be associated with very high performance and high well-being. So it's a win-win, I think, if we approach it like that. And then it doesn't have to be a box-ticking exercise because if organizations are really genuinely considering, well, you know, things like the meaning that we get from the work or the feeling that we have this positive impact through our work, and that can be on others, it can be through what we do and, the, you know, the impact that it has and so on. So creating jobs in a way that we see that sort of end result in some way, um, that we're not just a kind of a, a widget on a, on a line or something like that, but that we can genuinely see that we are part of this bigger whole and we are having this contribution. That leads to really high performance because people are motivated, they feel the meaning from their work, but it also leads to high well-being, typically speaking. And do you think there's a, a gap potentially in showing that say C-suite that high well-being leads to high performance, leads to more productive employees, which directly affects the bottom line. And do you think, let's say, HR are doing enough to show the C-suite that this is, in fact, a, a thing? I think it's very hard to answer that in generic. I think there are many, many organizations who are doing this excellently. And there are other organizations who are grappling with it. And there are other organizations who don't care about it at all. So I think we can't make very generic statements about it. But certainly, I think it's it's a topic that's on the minds of employees, managers, C-suite leaders in terms of addressing. And I think, as I said, it's really about understanding what the issues are, understanding how we can improve it, and also recognizing what, what is being done well. You know, you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, bath so to speak. Um, so recognizing when, you know, what, what is realistic for an organization to do in the sense that even though it's a very important aspect of our lives, work is still only one aspect of our lives. And so considering that, you know, we, we also have to be cautious not to overstep the line as well. You were talking there about work being one aspect of our lives. Do you think it's the responsibility of organizations now more so than previously to think about the demands that employees have outside of work? I mean, most workplaces will have family friendly policies and they'll, you know, recognize um, this, that and the other. I think what the pandemic has done is probably accelerated the extent to which we have this always on culture, you know, particularly for anybody who was working remotely and so on. You know, we all suddenly were sitting at our computers or, you know, we have email on our phone or you know, whatever the case may be. So I do think there's a very important responsibility for workplace leaders to recognize the boundaries of work and that to set very clear expectations that, you know, people are not expected to be completely at their laptops or checking their email or all those sort of things outside of their, their working hours. Now, of course, there's, there's times when we have to, there's very busy times and so on, but this shouldn't be a regular expectation. And we know that having this detachment from work is really, really important in terms of recovery from work. And so there's some really excellent research demonstrating that not only is it beneficial to have our two weeks of summer holidays or summer vacation, but actually we need daily recovery from work. So we need to be able to detach from work, to have some relaxation time after work, and that that actually increases our energy for work the next day. So I think the always on culture is definitely something that is having a, a negative effect on well-being and impacting yeah. not just work well-being, but more general mental health as well. Yeah. And with that in mind, then if you think about when an organisation should step in or, you know, when should they actually have that well-being intervention? Have you got any sort of thoughts around kind of some ways organisations can know, OK, so when do we step in and what type of intervention should we actually use? 
Yeah. So I would think of it more as a continuous process. As individuals throughout our lives, there will be times when we feel great. There'll be times when we're not so great. And, you know, there. I think the same can be applied to organizations. You know, there are times when we can be very, very busy and then we have periods when we're less busy and so on. So recognizing it more as a, a process of continuous ebb and flow, I think is a good way to look at it. And so there may be times when, you know, particularly if you think about it after the pandemic, you know, the many of the experts around well-being at the start of the pandemic were saying, well, you know, we'll all get through this crisis. And then afterwards, there'll be this slump because people have worked so many hours and been under so much pressure. And then there's also the other anxieties and all that sort of thing that came with a global pandemic. And so, for example, after a kind of a a very critical event like that, well, you know, we can probably predict that we're going to to need some sort of intervention or some sort of a, a boost in terms of our well-being. And in those sort of situations, it's important to think about what are the causes. In the midst of the pandemic, probably all any of us could do was try to manage the anxiety and manage the worry and manage the um, fact that many people were homeschooling and trying to do their jobs and so on. And in those situations, we try to build people's psychological resources. So, you know, things like managing our, you know, our emotions and emotion regulation type skills can be beneficial. In other situations, as I said, if the demands of the job are just totally unrealistic, well, then it may be appropriate to redesign the jobs or to at least think about how we align them so that they have more manageable workloads and so on. And if you think about it, if you do something like that, well, then you monitor the effects of it. You see whether people's well-being improve. You see whether there's sort of critical peaks and troughs in terms of busy times and so on. And so then it might be kind of, well, you know, after we our busy time, we always need to do something or so it, it really depends on the organization's ebbs and flows and so on, um, I would say. So that's not a very straightforward answer, a very easy answer. Unfortunately, these things aren't very straightforward. No, indeed. I have a couple of questions. One was a bit of insight into you, seeing as you are the person with all the knowledge, but In terms of your daily recovery, what do you try and do to make sure that you are recovered for your next day of work? Oh, I like that question. (laughs) Here is the do do what I say and not what I do situation. Yeah, so I often say that the life of an academic is we like to moan about how busy we are, but it's not far, far, far from the worst job in the world because we have an awful lot of the types of things that we say are beneficial. So we have a lot of autonomy to choose when we work and where we work, a lot of autonomy over what we work on, you know, in terms of our research. And so, you know, once once we show up for the classes that we're supposed to be doing and, you know, obviously that's that's kind of important. But beyond that, we do have a lot of autonomy in our jobs, um, which which can be a very beneficial thing. It does make it challenging to shut down at the end of the day, of course. And sometimes I get that right. And sometimes I don't get that right. I used to be reasonably fit. <laughs> quite as fit as I used to be but it's an interesting one because I do like running and cycling and triathlons and so on and most sports people or sports coaches would tell you that you should have goals around that and and it's funny because that's something I often struggled with quite a lot because for me it's more about my relaxation time actually and it's more about thinking about other things and getting a bit of fresh air whereas if you were if you were a serious sports person you'd you'd know that you had to you know train at a particular tempo and this sort of thing so I recognize that this is one way that I recover and so many years ago, I forgot about setting goals for my exercise and just decided getting out was enough. And that, I suppose, took some pressure out of my non-work activities, actually, which I think was important as well. So I think people knowing themselves and knowing that and making sure that they do take time to do something that they enjoy doing. Exercise is beneficial, of course, but it's not, you know, it's not what everybody loves doing. So whether whatever hobbies they have or, you know, making time for family or making time for doing what they love doing um, is very important, I think. 
I might just end on that, that one. I thought that was a good one. No, I was going to ask you about the role of line managers and how important their role is in making sure people do switch off and people do have that, if they want it, that line between work and home and what kind of role they play. And then what organisations need to do to, to ensure that line managers are able to to ensure the well-being of their subordinates are addressed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think line managers have a role in setting the expectations. So they have to very clearly signal it shouldn't be just sort of a, an unwritten thing that it is OK to shut down at the end of the day. And you are not expected to be answering emails or checking things online or responding to whatever, with the exception, of course, of people who might be on call or, you know, all those sort of things. That's a different situation. But in the norm that, you know, when people's work is finished, their work is finished and they're not expected to be online beyond that. Of course, from a HR perspective and, you know, from an employment legislation perspective, managers and organizations do have a responsibility to make sure that people are doing that. And a few things that I've seen are quite simple, you know, people organizations signaling that you shouldn't be sending emails out of hours or if you are to schedule them so that they are sent within hours and, you know, that sort of thing or to have things at the end of their email that, you know, I like to work sometimes in, you know, outside of normal working hours, but I don't expect you to respond, you know, so very clearly actually signaling things can be, and they sound very simple, but it's really setting the expectation and making people know that this is okay to, to actually detach from work. So one final question for me anyway, have you seen, or has it been measured in terms of potentially the societal impact that might occur if businesses do have a, have a focus on workforce wellbeing? Well, we know that from an economic perspective, that poor well-being um, from a workplace perspective is is very expensive. <laughs> we want to look at it purely from that perspective. So, you know, there was a, I think back in 2014, the EU estimated that it cost the economy of the EU maybe 20 I think it was 20 billion euro a year or something like that. And that comes from lost productivity, from people, from absences from work due to mental health issues and, and so on. So if we want to look at it purely from an economic perspective, well, yes, there's a fairly serious societal impact economically. But more broadly, of course, we know that people's work does cross over into their non-work lives. And that's not just for themselves, but also for their families, their spouses, their children, and so on. There's a lot of research done on what's called emotional contagion. And so, you know, if we have a hard day at work and we're a bit frustrated and we come home, that emotion tends to catch a little bit and we'll be a bit crankier with our spouse or something like that. So there are crossover effects, if we want to look at it like that, from our well-being in the workplace and our broader, you know, family and friends well-being as well, in terms of how much we express that or we vent or those sort of things. So from that perspective, societally, yeah, I mean, having a having a, a well workforce that's happy and, and well has benefits also in terms of, you know, non-work life and other domains and so on. Mm, And people are only really starting to, I guess we're at the beginning of organisations starting to recognise that. And therefore, once organisations recognise that, they then start to try and measure that. And so perhaps the ability and the measurement tools aren't quite there yet. And actually, this kind of lends into the final question, because we're just coming towards the end of the podcast. If we are having a chat in three years or even five years time, let's just say we get you back on the pod. Hopefully we'll get you back on the pod before then to talk about other bits, because I know when we'd spoken previously, there's a few different topics that we could talk to you about. Let's let's say we're doing a well-being pod in three, four or five years time. What's kind of different? What What is your hopes for how the workplace and how organisations and employees are engaging with approaches to well-being? 
I would hope, and this is actually interestingly not about well-being specifically, because well-being is the outcome of a lot of these things, but I would hope that organizations are really focused on providing decent work actually decent, good quality work. Because if you do that, so you pay people properly, you provide them with appropriate supports, you provide them with the appropriate resources to do their job, you have sufficient numbers of people to do the work, well-being should almost take care of itself because people enjoy their work, they love what they do, and they not only do we not have to worry about poor well-being, but actually they should have good well-being as an outcome. So I, I would hope that the, the focus shifts to really providing people with quality jobs. Yeah. And that's a fantastic way to end today's podcast, that hope that maybe in three years' time, I mean, I'll be even older, unfortunately. As will we all. Yeah, as will we all. But absolutely amazing having you on the podcast today. Thank you very much for joining us. You're more than welcome. Thank you very much. And Evan, for joining me for the first time, but not the last time. Thank you very much, sir. Thanks, Chris. You can, of course, get this podcast wherever you get your podcast. I won't go into the usual spiel because there are people that have probably listened to the North of 100 podcasts that we've done and they're bored by that by now. But yeah, hopefully you've enjoyed the show. Were you just pointing at yourself there saying like you're bored? You're, you're bored at the end no, of my like, endings. I like listening to your voice. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Maybe we'll get producer Brandon to edit that one out. Brandon, don't edit that one out. Thank you very much, listener. I really hope you enjoyed the show. We'll get Deirdre on again to get her to get on a soapbox or two but thanks for joining us and we will see you next time on the HR on the Offensive Podcast bye bye